Welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutchison, joined by my co-host, Andy Collins. Hello. Andy, what's uh, what's up with you? What is up with me? Well, it's been a minute since uh, since we talked over this podcast medium. We've actually seen each other in person since then. Right, yeah. A couple of times, right? We did. We, we took our podcast on the road and uh and didn't record we just forgot to bring all yeah. yeah we forgot to bring all the recording equipment right. it was it was really quite embarrassing it was, it was really just more of a conversation at that point right just a regular conversation yeah the, the way we used to do it before we introduced all this equipment and yeah in the old days just you know like people do that it's it was it was fun i mean it's it's pretty rare um these days that i get out of the house i get could go places and do things that you know, it's a little bit more often than say last year. So this is 2021 and 2020, it was, it was even less so, but it's still, um, it's still like not, it's not the norm for me to leave the house, you know? Um, and that definitely doesn't, it's got me thinking how, how much, uh, it's actually something I've really been thinking about lately, how much I miss conferences, Mm, and not mm, like yeah. online conferences. I know people are trying their best and I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying anything bad about them. Like they're, 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 they're better than nothing. I think I've done a couple of those, but it's just not the same thing. You know, like I, I just, I miss. Yeah. It's not all that. I, I, I agree. I mean, definitely being on the road, um, well, you know, we're just cooped up in the house all the time. I, I guess, I guess that's true. Well, I mean, I do a lot of walks around the neighborhood with my kids and, and whatnot, but, um, yeah, being on the road gave me the travel, travel bug for sure. And I would like to go to a couple of conferences in person. I, I've definitely been dabbling with the online conference stuff and, you know, so, some things are more like webinars and some things are actual conferences where you can participate and, and you had to buy a ticket and, and there's a little bit more audience feedback and live real-time stuff, but it's just not the same. It's not the same feeling. It doesn't leave me with the same impression or excitement about the technology. Um, so I am very much looking forward to those in-person conferences. I had some thoughts on conferences before the pandemic that they were sort of losing their importance or that they weren't the way I discovered new technologies um, as much anymore. But I, I do miss them. They do still have a role to play, even if it's just excitement or personal enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, like you said, um, when we were when we saw each other, we actually took a little road trip with a couple of friends, um, and that was a that was a little bit of what I liked about it because you know we're all a bunch of programmers. We talk about nerdy things, mm -hmm. and that's part of what the conference is, right? It's that mm -hmm. hallway track mm -hmm. thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. The organic conversations, you don't know where they're going to lead with the online stuff. It's, it's too structured and it's just so much harder to get, you know, you don't have that body language. You don't have that way of saying, I have something to say about this particular topic and people can read that. And it's just, it's a lot more, it's, it's just overly structured. And it's nothing against online. There's just this the nature of online. It can't be done. I don't think it can sure. be done any other way. We, I mean, until we can like immerse ourselves in the matrix, I don't know how it can be any different. You know? Yeah, I, I think it's it's. I'm happy that online conferences exist for sure, and it gives people that you know that live in far flung areas or that don't have the resources to travel the ability to to hear from some of the experts in the industry or 
or even present themselves, right? Some people just don't have the ability to travel. And so online conferences definitely have their place. Uh, I think it's just good that we have a mix of all. Uh, I think overall, I'm just ready to to get back to, to whatever normal was in a way. And that part of that was definitely conferences. Yeah, no, I think the, the last in-person conference I went to was Strange Loop in uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. You and I went together to that, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it's just that's that's actually the, the greatest conference I've ever been to in my life. Um, <laughs> That just that conference itself, I've gone to a couple of times. Um, and yeah. I think they are trying to do something in person this year, but it's just not quite right for me just yet. Um, so yeah, maybe next definitely year, still, next year, definitely still leery of, of, of large crowds like that and the big, you know, the, the primarily indoor spaces. I think when it's just, just us or just our, our friends, you know, we can be outside we can control and we, we know like um we, we just know how to be safe and it feels like that stuff is just you know the pandemic is just a little too prevalent for that to be even with masks and all that stuff for me to be totally comfortable but um yeah strange loop was was a great conference i won't say it's the best conference i ever went to because i did get to go to one that was at disney world once um I think I went to one, it was called angle brackets, but it was part of a larger group of conferences. <laughs> and I, I'm struggling to remember the name of it right now. Is that um, the, that's a Microsoft it's, conference, right? It's, I think actually like Carl Franklin and um, Richard Campbell have something to do with it. Is that the dev intersection? Dev intersection. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't think of that, but uh, yeah, dev intersection. And it was, so they have that twice a year or we're having it twice a year. One was in Orlando at Disney World. One was in um, Las Vegas. Never went to Las Vegas one, but the one at Disney World was was awesome. And uh, it, it does have a heavy Microsoft presence, right? Multiple Scots from Microsoft, Scott Guthrie and uh, Scott Hanselman were there. And yeah, just just looking forward to getting back to stuff like that. One of the things you mentioned about being remote, like, is kind of nice. Like, it, I'm doing a remote a user group, the .NET user group here in Nashville. I usually attend that, and and it is, uh, it's been remote for a long time now. We kind of toyed around with going in person for a minute there, and didn't quite do it. Um, but I have, we have had some good experiences where we've had people. Uh, we actually had a speaker from the UK one one time, and that was pretty cool. So, one of the things that remote has given us is the ability to have people. You know, mm-hmm. speak at a conference or at a user group or a conference, I guess, that uh, that wouldn't normally be able to do that in an in-person situation. So, yeah, that that's definitely true. Like the increases the the reach almost globally, um, presuming that the they're willing to be up at some odd hour or, or y'all are willing to be up at some odd hour. Um, in the absence of all of that, uh, I mean, I guess there's a whole separate conversation of like how you learn the conferences what the point of a conference is. But for me, one of the, the things that a, a conference, the role it served in my life was just kind of telling me what's what's on deck, right? What's coming down the pipeline in terms of new technologies. I often heard it said, you know, conferences don't really teach you anything. They, they teach you what you need to teach yourself. It's probably a more elegant way of saying that. Um, but I've definitely turned to Twitter um, to some degree, Reddit, you know, these online sources a lot more in the last year, two years uh, to figure out what the technology is 
that that I need to be preparing myself for, or, or just you know, I want to know what's out there, not to avoid it, but like, okay, I understand its place. It doesn't have any role in my life, but it's going on, and maybe I'll catch up with it later. Have you been doing something similar? Yeah, you know, I think I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the show, but. Lately, the past few months, I've sort of like turned Twitter off and uh, I thought I might sort of miss it and kind of start jonesing for it. But it's actually been wonderful to turn Twitter off. But because of that, I have missed out on some of those things. I do spend a lot of time on Reddit some. And I listen to podcasts. I think podcasts mm-hmm. are probably the number one way that I get that sort of like, what should I be looking into kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah, I mean, uh, Twitter used to be that that thing for me, but it just kind of got kind of got a little bit soul crushing for a while there. So I sort of backed away from that. Yeah, Twitter it, it needs more controls on uh, what content you see, or you need to be able to give it a mood. You know, like I'm in a I'm in a not so good place right now. Twitter, can you just only show me like uh, some of the more positive things or, or can you give me some uplifting news? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just want some, like specific technical stuff too, right? Like, uh, like I'm a, I don't know. I think it's because I didn't curate my Twitter well and just went crazy. And so I, the thing mm-hmm. to do now is probably burn it all down and rebuild or mm-hmm. just turn it off. And so I chose the simpler approach just, just sure. Just for now. But I, I agree with you that like, you know, one of the things that conferences do is it helps you keep up with, the new things and like you say just give me the bulleted list of things that i might be interested in and then i can go explore it on my own so twitter can do that too twitter i've had that experience yeah it is the most magical when you're like actually interacting with people instead of just passively reading um i do really enjoy twitter when i'm actually having a conversation with someone about some technical issue you know you're kind of live or near real-time troubleshooting Basically, uh, it, it acts like a, a a more personable stack overflow in that way sometimes. But that's a little bit more rare for me. And I think that's mostly on me, right? I'm not necessarily seeking out those opportunities. I, I could probably do a better job of that. Um, this seems like a good place to remind our listeners that uh, if you would like to interact with us on Twitter, our, our Twitter handle is RefCountPodcast. Uh, so we would love to to hear your questions or, or comments and tell us where we're wrong about anything or right. If, if you feel so inclined to lie to us. Yeah. If Taylor, if Taylor tells me there's interesting discussion happening over there, I'll jump right back on there and have and <laughs> chat. I would really, I would like to have a, a pleasant Twitter experience. Yeah. Um, well, I saw something on Twitter last night about all the new things that are coming to C sharp 10. Have you been following uh, C sharp 10 at all? Yeah, I've, I've kind of kept up a little bit and just sort of gone out and, and read a couple blog posts and that sort of thing. So it yeah. seems like a, a lot of nice features, but nothing that's just sort of overwhelmingly amazing. If I, right. Yeah. At least from my of, perspective. It's definitely, um, C sharp overall, we've talked about this for a long time is, is, is a baked language, right? Um, I don't know what you would call at this stage. Are we, are we continuing to bake it? Or is it, uh, I just don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it's very much nice to haves cleaning up the language. There is some, um, continuity, I guess, of features of removing unnecessary, 
syntax, uh, curly braces and things like that. Just kind of keeping the language as simple as possible. I think um, top level statements. Was that in C sharp eight? No, that was nine. Nine, nine. Thank you. Um, now we have file scoped namespaces. That's a think pretty nice feature. That's going to be a nice thing. Just don't have to have that extra layer of uh, curly mm -hmm. braces and indention just to have in your class in a namespace, which is what you want to do anyway, mm -hmm. right? Right, exactly. So I think those are those are great. I wanted to ask you about one that I did not know until I saw this, this uh, string of tweets, um, and that's global usings. Have you seen or heard anything about this? Yes, I think global usings are pretty cool too. Um, I think they're cool, but I wanted to hear what you thought about them from like a teacher's perspective. Do you think that uh, – so in my mind, the way I would use this is – there are some usings that I just include in a lot of files, like 70% plus of my files are going to have system, system.links, especially system collections generic, right? That's very common in the workflows and the, in the, the code that I write. Um, and it makes sense to have them just one place, right? In the program CS file, probably just going to include them there. And I don't have to worry about it. It keeps a few lines of code out of my... Um, various files do you think that that's a is that going to be good for students neutral like is that going to confuse them what are your thoughts on the using the global using well maybe just real quickly like what we're talking about the global using feature is you can add like a using to a, any any source file in your application and if you put mm -hmm. like, I think the word, the, the keyword global in front of it. So global mm -hmm. using and then the mm -hmm. namespace, and then it becomes available in every, every C sharp file in your project, right? It's project scoped, I guess. Um, right. Uh, is, no, I think it's any that's included in the compilation, but. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I think it might be cross project. Okay. As long as it's part of one of the same compilation. I mean, there, there could be weird scenarios. But yeah. Let's just, for the simplicity, say, just say it's in the project. But you, so you can put it there and then you don't have to say like using system in every class file. Well, and like you say, exactly. you're almost always going to say using system in every class file, unless you have some like DTO object that only has primitive types <laughs> in it or something. That's the right. only time you don't use system, right? But even then, right. Like, as soon as you need a date time, you're like, oh, well, we got to use system. Right. Yep. <laughs> It always um, kind of surprises me when I'm doing that, you know, just like, oh, wait, I haven't brought in system yet. Right. And so, like, I I think it's it's a cool feature. I think I've, I've seen some people talk about, like, having a separate source file that was only purpose was for the global usings. So, like, a mm -hmm. global using.cs or whatever. But I think putting in mm -hmm. program CS or, like, your whatever your main method is makes sense, too. I don't know. It'd be kind of interesting to see what patterns emerge there. But right. Well, generally, my program CS, like in web projects, is so small anyway. You know, it's really just kind of kicking a few things off, and all the much larger setup is in the startup.cs file for, for ASP.NET Core projects. Yeah, I think that sure makes a lot of sense, actually. I, I think it makes more sense to put it in program CS than it does in some other file. But maybe the convention will be that. And if the convention becomes there's a global file, then I guess that's what I'll do too. But. Mm -hmm. um, from a learning perspective, so I will say probably, I probably wouldn't teach this feature 
like that's my my i haven't really thought about this to be honest just yet mm -hmm. but uh i probably would not actually demo show this feature um just because you know the further away these things are the easier they are to forget and and there's mm -hmm. a balance there because to be honest to be honest with you like Students rarely really understand namespaces. Mm. Namespaces are this, like, or a real, a real headbender, a real abstraction that students don't gather. At least my students. Maybe I'm not teaching them well, but they don't. They have a hard time kind of following what that means because you can't look at anything and say that's the namespace. The namespace comes into existence when you just mention it once. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not like a real. There's, there's not like a directory. I mean, sometimes they match the directories and sometimes they don't and they, they, you know, they don't have to, and that's confusing. They don't really map to like a NuGet package, but sometimes they do conventionally, but they don't really have to. Uh, and it's really kind of challenging for students. And they think about, they think about using the using directive as an import. So my students learn JavaScript first. And so JavaScript has imports is really a different thing than using names, you know, than a using. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they get very confused about it. Uh, so there, there is one argument, I guess, to be made that if you put them all in one spot, then we can basically just not confuse the students by, uh, you know, if, if we did that, that would essentially be like ignoring namespaces, you know, mm -hmm. like if we yeah. wanted to just, just ignore putting them, them in a corner over there. Um, and right. I, I'm not inclined to think that's a great idea, particularly the, the tooling is going to prompt you to, to add those to your probably to the same class file that you're in now and not to go to the global because you don't want to just put everything in the global. Um, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. What, what will the suggestions of all these IDEs be, you know? If I'm like, uh, I mean, if I'm building a repository and I need to get, you know, like include my models namespace. I, mean, I don't want that to be in global. I don't think for, I don't, and I certainly, I don't want, you know, all my, all my internal namespaces to be global, right? I'll, I might want a lot of the system namespaces to be global or at least some of them. Mm -hmm. uh, like you, yeah. you mentioned the big three already. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like it might just be a little bit noisier than it is helpful from a learning perspective, to be honest. I, I'm, I'm willing to, to have my mind changed on that, but that's kind of where I am right now. Now that makes sense. I mean, if, if namespaces are already confusing, maybe this won't, it, it, at best case, it'll be like a neutral, but it also could further confuse people. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these things unfold. I really like what they're doing though. You know, they're polishing the language on both ends. They're polishing it for the really advanced use cases and polishing it for the, uh, the beginner level. It, it feels like in the last couple of releases. The uh, the file level namespace directive. I would really like to use that. Mm -hmm. I think that would be great for students. I think it just cleans that up a little bit. It's a little bit less noisy. However, I, you know, the question is like, is that going to be the default when you do it, when you create a new class in Visual Studio? Probably mm -hmm. the default is going to win in that case. You know, I'm not going to mm -hmm. have people delete the curly braces for the namespace and then unindent the class and you know that sort of thing. That seems right. like way unnecessary. The um, I, I think it's going to be. This is not about not anything in my world right now, but um, the uh, record structs or struct records, whichever yep. way mm -hmm. that goes, I think is really interesting. Record structs, I think, is how they're they're calling them. But uh, yeah, 
um, you know, I think I th- when records first came out, I sort of like intuitively thought about them as value types. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, <laughs> they're just classes that have like a default things to public. Um, but I think having the ability to create a, a value type that is a record and has that simpler syntax and has those kind of nicer public-y defaults is, is going to be mm-hmm. pretty nice for a lot of scenarios. Yep. yep. And then maybe C-sharp 11 has some features to, you know, if we're moving towards more records to, to kind of disable some of the uh, old ways of doing things, sort of like how we have the null reference option we can enforce um, setting our setting some defaults to these nullable types. And maybe we can disable some of the, the older ways of doing things. I think I've been advocating for that for a long time. It's like, I just want to go into the, the project file and say, I disallow the use of these keywords or, or the use of these, you know, paradigms or something like that. Um, I, I got it. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I would. I don't think it's going to happen, but I want to keep putting it out into the universe because I, I would love that. You know, maybe I can just write my own tooling that does that, that sits on top of this stuff. But uh, I really think that would be a nice feature. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good point. You know, they're not really, I mean, unless I'm just totally out of, out of it and don't know, like, I don't really know of any, any really, common or the standard linters or whatever for C sharp. I mean, there used to be different tools in visual studio for a long time, but what are people using to, to lint their C sharp to say like, you know, we don't want to do this or to make sure just to make sure formatting is correct or whatever, but you could also Mm -hmm. maybe put in rules like, you know, don't ever use a using block, always use the using declarations or whatever you want to do, or, you know, use init only properties or something like that. Well, I mean, Visual Studio itself has so much. So are you thinking about like, uh, what was it called? Style Cop? Yeah, Style Cop was was one I used a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know what the status of that stuff is. But Visual Studio itself has just a lot of suggestions, right? And then um, sometimes the compiler will will give you helpful hints. um, But those aren't really style things. Well, it'd be nice to have um, something you could put in like a build process or, you know, build pipeline, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Some type of open source tool that could just, yeah, just like we have um, ESLint, right, on the JavaScript side. Um, TSLint is kind of no more. And I feel certain that there are these things and I'm just totally ignorant of them. So that might be a thing you might tweet at us. <laughs> right. Exactly. Someone, Someone's got a project out there that does these things. I mean, that was sort of the... Um, one of the points of the Roslyn compiler, right? That it was a platform you could sit on top of and do kinds of all kinds of inspections. So hopefully these things are actually easier to build than they ever were. Well, I wanted to have a, I mean, (laughs) that was all intro. That was all the great uh, intro talk, but I wanted to have a, a, a conversation with you about a topic that came up on our trip and not sure how we're going to come down on this because we didn't really come to any resolution while we were talking in person, but it's this whole idea of a license for software developers. I think this has been floated for years and years and years. Um, not even really sure what the exact question that we're trying to address is, but I, I've heard for a long time 
why aren't software developers licensed in the other way in ways that that um, other engineers are are licensed right so we would expect a civil engineer um to have a license or that's a very common thing to hear about that that these engineers are licensed professional engineers you would expect someone that, that works on on systems that could impact someone's safety like an airplane to be licensed in some ways so why aren't software developers licensed at, at some level and again i've heard the question posed different ways but um what what are your generally thoughts on the whole idea of a software license or a license for software developers rather because a software license is a different thing right right um you know software licenses are just confusing and then they scare me um <laughs> there are some some governments that require uh licensing for software engineers and even some uh, who say, like, you can't use the word engineer if you're not licensed. Mm-hmm. So I know in, in, the, in the U.S., Texas seems to be like in the forefront of that. And they've been around for a long time. I remember even 20 years ago when I was in college or more than 20 years now, whatever. Um, when I was in college, it, that was true then. Like in Texas, you couldn't call yourself a software engineer. They basically said in those days, in the 90s, right, you couldn't do it because you you could not, there was no avenue for being licensed. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so it was illegal to call yourself an engineer. And and then I think in Canada, that might be true too. There's, I think there might be some other states that are like that as well. Like you, you, you're technically not supposed to call yourself a software engineer or any kind of engineer without a license, without a professional engineering license. Um, now, I think people do it all the time. Right. Yeah. Who Who's enforcing that, I guess? I mean, the state, um, the state or the country, I don't know, the state or province or whoever is doing it. I think they're supposed to. And I don't know how that works, if that's like, you know, some kind of, you know, sternly worded letter or a fine or some kind of thing like that. Um, but I don't know how well that really happens. The term engineer gets thrown around. Uh, and I think in Texas, like, you don't just to be a software developer, you don't have to have a license. In order to call yourself an engineer, you do. And there are certain rules around, like like you said earlier, if you're doing something that involves health or safety sorts of things, um, you're technically supposed to do that. So if you're, you know, building uh, software for, you know, like MRI machines or whatever, maybe mm-hmm. you're supposed to have a license or there's somebody in the in the shop who's supposed to have a license in order to actually, you know, super oversee it and supervise that sort of work. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I looked into this after our conversation a little bit and there are, there was a, there was a movement that seems to have like gone, gone away again. So the last, in the last decade, commonly called the 2010s or the teens or whatever that, I don't know what to call that decade. <laughs> the aughts? No, no, not, not the aughts. The post-aughts, the, yeah, yeah. the ones. Post-aughts. What do you call it? The right. Enos. The ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, uh. There was a movement, uh, IEEE tried to do, you know, try to create this thing and they created a professional exam. And I was actually looking at it like, well, and then they discontinued it sometime towards the end of the decade because nobody wanted to take it. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a whole another question that I'd like to get to, which is like, if there were to be a license, what, how would you, you know, what would be the requirements, right? So for professional engineers here in the United States, you have to do some, uh, I think it's like four years of, of working, like an apprentice type situation. And then there's a test 
So what would even be on the test? I don't know. That that seems like a very complicated question to me. There are a couple of tests. You have to take like some generic engineering test, which mm. is like physics and chemistry and like fluid dynamics and stuff like physical world because most engineering is, is involved with the world, the physical world. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to take some specialized tests, I think for your area. And then like you say, yeah, have work experience and have to have like people give you a recommendation, but say that you're ethical and that you're not going to do terrible things, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting aspect of that certification and licensing. I think that there's a whole ethical component to it. Yeah, I, I'm for the ethics component, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, that feels like it's an easily gamed thing that, that you could just find someone who said, you know, I'll pay you $100 if you say I'm ethical, which itself would be, you know, a problem. Sure. But um, I mean, you would think, you know, the ideas of professional organizations and state or government agencies is sort of like, I don't know. They, they police themselves a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you're right. You probably could game it, but I also think that there's something there. If you have, if you have like a, a professional organization, like the bar association that does uh, mm -hmm. lawyers and stuff, you know, they have a, an interest in, in having a good reputation for, for lawyers generally. Yeah. Right? No, I think that, that the professional engineers, um, and lawyers, that's a good distinction to make. I think you're right that they're, at least in the news, I read a lot more about, you know, this lawyer was disbarred. They they did something unethical. They did something illegal. They're not allowed to practice in the state anymore. And I think, you know, generally, that's probably a good thing for lawyers that we keep keep them from, from practicing law, at least for a certain time. Um, would that be good for software developers or software engineers, I guess, um, that the state comes in and says, you can't practice software engineering? Like, what would that even look like? Would that be preventing people from from accessing a computer like a like a criminal? Um, well, that's interesting. So I, I, I think I from uh, if you're a chemical engineer and you're working in a water treatment plant, and like you just started ignoring all the sewage going into the water or something, mm -hmm. then maybe you lose your license for something like that, mm -hmm. right? But it's hard to practice that if you're not working at the sewer treatment, the water treatment plant or whatever, right? Right, right. And this, I think, this becomes the distinction between in in the licensing conversation or the professionalism conversation. This is the distinction between a professional engineer and a software developer. And so a professional engineer is somebody who like is working on public somehow, not necessarily public facing or like public sector applications, but they're working on things that people are going to use in this health and in the world of health and safety is something that affects people's lives. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're not, you're not doing that. I mean, in the world of open source, maybe you could potentially try to do it, but you're probably not doing that on your own in your, in your mother's basement or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. It's just the, 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 the parallels aren't exact, right? Because like you said, we have open source, we have the ability to, to bring in other assets from other people. Like when you're building a bridge, I guess you, you buy parts, you buy bolts and that stuff is certified. Maybe that's the, the corollary to open source software. You're bringing in something, but, um, that stuff has some type of ISO specification. It's been tested that it's meeting some something. And then you can 
go to that company and say, hey, you sold me faulty bolts. These are made of aluminum instead of steel or something like that. There's a way there's a there's recourse for that. Um, so I, it just seems like it's hard to map the way professional engineers behave to the way computer you know, software developers behave and, and act and work in the marketplace. It, it just doesn't feel one for one. Well, I think that the vast majority, even those people who are promoting this professionalism of, of software engineers, um, from my limited research there, I don't think that people are like saying that every software developer should have a license. Though, you know, like it's easy to see that as a stepping stone towards that inevitable future if that were to actually take hold i don't know it might be decades yeah, from now I, mean, I don't even think that i mean well you don't have to have a, a license to be an engineer right because how else would you get the the work experience right there's lots of engineers that don't have their 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 license and you, what you do is you work with other people that do and then they exactly. help mentor you right it's an it's really like kind of a a guild model or apprenticeship kind of model i think from from the long ago days um, yeah and that's that's where my research led me when i started looking into this topic um it, you know, a couple of quick uh, clicks in in wikipedia and i was on the the history of guilds page um, so this actually does have quite a deep history uh, and guilds are the purpose of guilds, I think, is is a little bit different. Uh, but there is certainly an evolution between guilds and then later universities and then the professional license that we have in the United States and in Europe and other parts of the world. There's definitely a lineage there. Um, yeah, I, I agree that there's no one that I've ever seen that says every software developer has to have a license to practice. I, I don't see. So that's not a straw man argument that I'm trying to put up. Uh, but I do see people. I've been at conferences where people suggested that um, we're committing wide malpractice by not requiring or not thinking about at least what a license would look like for, for certain um, sectors of software development, right? People that work on airplane software is oftentimes the example that, that's given um, because there's so much so much uh, human life and uh, money at stake, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, it's hard to argue, at least for me, it's hard, it's hard to say, like, that's a crazy thing to say. Like, I'm not, I don't know, if, I don't know if that solves the problem or if there even is a problem, you know, I, I don't know. Like, but I, it's like, we can all agree that people writing software for, for airplanes like are doing uh, important work and a, and a really, you know, work that, that could go wrong. Right. Like it, right. if it goes wrong, it's really bad, I think. And, and it, sometimes it does go wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, yeah. you know, does that mean that profession, that a professional organization or a licensure would actually prevent that from happening? Does it actually go wrong very often? You know, like, I don't think it does. You know, yeah, I don't think, yeah. So, so I think that's a probably actually a poor example. It resonates with people in the moment because they're like, yeah, of course I want the people that write flight software to, to have uh, certain credentials or, or, you know, it gives you kind of that, um, that sense of, of immediacy that, that we need to do this because you're scared about flying on a plane that that's written by um, people that don't know what they're doing. 
maybe some some better examples would be like I'm thinking back to that famous Volkswagen example where there was some software written to sort of avoid certain emissions tests. And um, I didn't really look into that very well. So I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but that was my memory of the situation. that There was something done to avoid emissions tests to make it look like the car was uh, more emissions friendly or environment friendly than it really was. Yeah, I think it behaved differently when it was being tested or something. Along yeah, those lines. I think that's right. So that's not going to ha- that's not going to immediately hurt somebody. But, you know, at scale, that's a bad thing. And that might not have been a, a problem of of. These people weren't competent. It was more of a problem of ethics. It seems to me so. There's a component of the license that I'm for, which is more ethics. I just think it's very hard to say, well, your license, do do we license people to write functional code? Do we license them to write object oriented stuff? Is it licensed for a specific language or or a a larger technical stack? Uh, I just don't know from a practical standpoint how that's even accomplished. It just seems like there's such a wide variety of tools. If we if we look back to the way that the guilds were run, um, you didn't have like the metalworking guild. You had many guilds that were like, okay, that's the knife working guild. That's the farrier for horses. You know, they, there was lots of divisions based on guild, not inside the guild. So would there be many licenses? You know, if you wanted to work in a different tech stack, well, you got to go get that license. I, I just, from a practical standpoint, I just don't know how, even if it was a, if we deemed it as a good idea, which I'm still not sold on, I don't know how we would actually get it out there and get it to be usable. It just seems like it would be such a disruptor to the to the industry to get getting things done. Software developers are already kind of hard to find. And now now they need to be licensed to do certain things. Um, yeah, I, I find that to be quite a challenge. Well, and I think that uh, that you know you're not alone in that the. I mentioned earlier that IEEE, uh, which is you know a standards body and who's oh, has the letter I and several E's following it. That I, some mm-hmm. of those is engineering. I don't remember what it all stands for. <laughs> um, and they they are sort of proponents of this, or at least they have been. It seems that they've been quiet for a little while. But the ACM, the Associated Association of Computing Machinery, is that right? Something like that. That sounds right. ACM. Yep. Uh, they apparently for, for a little while, they were kind of on board with it too. And this was 20 years ago or something. And then somewhere along the way, they decided that it, it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that it seemed like what they were saying was similar to what you just said. You know, a lot of it is about how young the industry is and how things are yeah. changing a lot and how there are so many different ways of doing stuff. Um, and th- that an interesting point that they made was that they felt that a license would give a false sense of competency. Mm, yeah, I, I can see that. I think that if that's the only thing that we're looking for, then that that could definitely cause some issues on its own. Well, and and because I think it, that's, a, that's a direct result of how complex the industry is and how things change all the time. So if I got a license... 10 years ago, and maybe I'm still doing continued education because in professional engineers have to go take classes every year or whatever. Like, am I really going to be able to keep up? I mean, can you really say that my 10 year old license is sufficient 
uh, you know, or maybe 20 years ago before, you know, the web was what it is. That was web 1.0, if you remember those days, right? <laughs> right. And so like, and today, and you know, that was like server-side rendered web applications that were all like, um, hitting, you know, three-tiered systems. And now today mm. we're living in this some world of like, you know, multi-tiers. I don't even know how to call talk about tiers anymore. Microservices, front-end frameworks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, not just relational databases, but we're talking about caching systems, we're talking about NoSQL databases, right. we're talking about, like, I don't know, like, is it, would, would that certification, would it either just mean nothing or would it mean the opposite? What would, would it mean, like, would I just rest on my laurels, you know, and sit back and say, well, I got the certification in 2001 or whatever. Well, I think there's an argument to make that, that licensing would harm innovation, right? Because everyone would want to say, well, you've licensed me or I've licensed myself somehow. Um, I, I can't learn those new technologies. I shouldn't learn them. I shouldn't adopt them as, as my tools, my tool bag, because I won't be licensed for them. There's, so there's no point in learning them. I'm only licensed for these tools. And so whatever kind of the technology scene is at the moment, this license gets introduced sort of bakes it in for a longer period of time than it normally would be. And I think that that's part of that argument that the industry is too immature still, mm -hmm. which is so we're all, you know, gang with adolescents wandering around, you know, tripping over everything with our voices squeaking, trying <laughs> to understand the world. And we're not, we're just trying different stuff, you know, like yeah. you do when you're a teenager or whatever. And, you know, there aren't, you know, I, I, maybe in the world of, you know, um, st structural engineering, there's still innovations and new materials and everything, but this, the pace is slow enough that you can keep up that you, a lot of things haven't changed in several hundred years, you know, that sort of thing. The arch is still a good idea. Right. For example, or the laws of physics and the, you know, the, the things that we're basing this off of, yeah, ha haven't changed. And, um, yeah, like there is a, a long history, I presume thousands and thousands of years of history, um, of structural, engineering and architecture that happened before the first license was issued, right? They had a long time to get it, to try things and get it right and figure out um, <laughs> what does it take to be a good engineer? What does it take to keep people safe? I guess. One thing I didn't look into and I'm kind of curious about now is, is that world are lawyers and, and engineers having a similar conversation wondering about the utility of a license? I wonder if if the whole community of engineers is just pro-license or if there's some dissent in saying, you know what, this license thing does give us a false sense of security. I don't know. I, 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 my I no my very general and like vague idea is that I think they, they're pro I sort of got the sense that there was a lot of like, why aren't these software people getting licensed? They're calling themselves an engineer and whatever they're doing, engineering to some, for some definition of that word, they should have a license just like us. But, you know, I think I, some of that yeah. is like, and this is totally a guess, but some of that's like, I put in the work to do this. It was really hard. I had to learn about fluid dynamics and I never used it. You know, mm -hmm. I take the passes right. test or whatever. Like why are these guys over here, are these people over here, like not having to do that. And they're sitting around and they're, you know, they're wearing sandals. And typing on, <laughs> right. you know, yep. who, who are these people? They're not professionals, this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I also get that sense. I don't really have any concrete data to point to, 
but I also get that sense for sure. Um, and I think that those that do have their, their professional engineering license like it because it was a pathway for them to make more money and have more prestige. And it's been valuable to them in, you know, on a personal level as well. And Um, I would say like, I'm sort of, I'm not against those things. I think I'm really don't know what to think about software. I know we're having a conversation where neither of us know what we have, what our opinions are necessarily. Um, But I'm for medical licensing and legal licensing and engineering licensing generally. I think that's really important. I think one of the things that we miss when we talk about this analogy between, say, bridge builders and software developers and, you know, where now bridge builders have to have a license, at least somebody on the on the crew has to have a license to check it out, to, to look at mm-hmm. it, to, to verify it. What we're missing is all the time before they had licenses, you know, people used to die. Like the right. bridges collapsed, buildings collapsed, you know, like during the time, like learning how to do this stuff, learning how to do that kind of engineering, like meant, you know, that when it went wrong, it went way wrong. Right. And we're, you know, and, and now like licensing seems to sort of like, let's lock in to this to the things that we've learned that went wrong so they don't go wrong again. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so well, I think that's software. The, the software side is like, we haven't, we still haven't quite got there yet. Yeah. But I, that I means that, that that's the tension. That means that it's going to go wrong and that means it's going to affect people's lives. That's the thing. Like if we're saying that what we're, I mean, I think what we're saying is if you don't license people, if it doesn't make sense to license people for it to be software engineers, what you're saying is, we haven't killed enough people yet to figure out what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't had enough, like enough people being irradiated by x-rays or enough planes drop out of the sky. You know, yeah. like obviously we don't want that to happen, but I think that's kind of like what it means to have this new industry. We, software hasn't done enough damage yet for us to have learned from it and figure out how to do these things correctly. And it also hasn't done enough damage on the other side. It hasn't done enough damage to for the public to demand it either well that that's the, the fear right that if, if we don't do anything a, a license will be forced upon us right someone will come in the government will come in and, and mandate a certain thing which so it might behoove us to as an industry to to move beyond a little bit of the self-regulation and do some actual regulation um but again it goes back to like what does it look like what are the consequences for not doing it right you know i fear um, a couple things, you know, I think that it's a great thing for anyone to be able to, to be a software developer, to get to a computer and use it and program and do things. I, I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for people to that want to transition their career to software development, to be able to experiment and do things. So I don't want that overly regulated where you have to have a license, like we have to have a license to drive or you have to have a license to use a computer in a certain way. I think that'd be a bad thing. But you could imagine um, a state or a government agency, let's say, like the FAA. Maybe the mm-hmm. FAA says there's this license for writing for working on airport airplane software or whatever, airline software. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna if if you if you are I don't know, Boeing or whoever is contracting these companies out to write this software. You, that that company has to meet this criteria. 
You know, that company mm-hmm. has to have, you know, the X number of its, its engineers have, have this license of this like airplane software license. So it doesn't yeah. happen across the board. It doesn't happen like one day, you know, if you touch your computer without your license, you're going to, you know, go thrown in jail. Uh, it, mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it, it's not some kind of honor system or whatever. It's just like you, it's in this particular specific situation, this rule is going to require you to do that or you're not going to get the contract. Yeah. You know? I think that that's far more likely and far more appropriate an approach for, for us as a country and, and the world at large probably to do that, where in these situations where we have known risk to human life, you need to have some level of requirements, right? Like if you have a military contract or something, you need to to put your people through certain trainings. We already do that for, for other things and we should probably do that as well. What would be on the test? What would be the requirements? I think that that goes back to that larger question of, of of what you know how do you check someone's ability to do software engineering do you make them take a test on fluid dynamics even though it has nothing to do with fluid dynamics or would it be just enough to say they've taken ethics courses they've taken things around software engineering but the actual specifics of coding are not on the test i'm more inclined for this second approach where it's things about being a professional rather than the syntax or, or concepts in programming. Cause I think you, you harm innovation when you do that. Well, but if you're, you know, if the people working in the, in the airline software industry right now, and I think this is how this happens right there, they, they, we explore them and say, like, what things do you need to know in order to be good at this job? And some of that's going to be syntax and some of that's going to be, you know, C plus plus or whatever they're using. I think, you know, part of being a professional is understanding your tools and being able to wield them correctly. It's, it's not just, you know, not taking a bribe to, to, you know, do some nefarious thing or whatever. So, yeah, but if they, okay, if they look at the industry and say, well, y'all are using C++ now and we bake that in, then it becomes much harder for them to evolve and, and move into that 21st century airline or whatever that that we would like them to be to remain competitive with other companies that aren't, you know, regulated by the same government. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's true. That's, that's true. I think, I think that, and that's been a lot of the problem. There's the bootstrapping problem. I don't know how that, I don't know how that works in a world where like, well, now the industry is wanting to move to rust or something that's, and it's even safer, right? We want to do this right. now for our software. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe there's, maybe there's ways to, to do that. Maybe there's like, there's built into the regulations or built into the system. There are like reviews of that sort of thing. You know, the continued Mm -hmm. education, like, is it staying up to date? That being said, it's not, you know, you're right. I think there's, it's impossible when you're adding that kind of bureaucracy, you're, you're going to limit the speed of at least innovation. And I sort of going to like, I mean, it can't happen, but it's, it's, it's gotta be slower. I don't know if that's good. Maybe that is good. Maybe you want software for airplanes to evolve more slowly. Well, you probably do, but then are you preventing new players from entering the market? Right. Maybe someone has a new type of flying machine. Um, and they're going to be regulated anyway, but if you make it so that 
they have to use these type of developers or these type of FAA approved licensed software engineers. Um, you're, yeah, you're just harming the market um, back to innovation. Not that I'm all about innovation. I think that there, when, when there's multiple competing goals here. Well, just, I, I think you're right. I think that's what actually, I mean, that's, that's what happens. The bar association had, you know, kind of pushes these rules that say, you know, you have to be a lawyer in order to, to defend somebody. Like if I mm-hmm. went, if I, you know, got a degree in law, but didn't pass the bar, like I'm not going to be able to like be your lawyer or mm-hmm. something. Um, I don't know what the rules around that are, but you can't give me money or whatever, you know, we're, we're, there are rules. So yeah, I think those professional organizations do end up kind of, you know, closing the, you know, uh, closing the walls or the, uh, around, around themselves a little bit and get that extra security by having that. So it, it kind of does reduce innovation or it does, it does, it, I think that, that effect is going to happen since you have mm-hmm. these regulations or since you have these licenses. The question is like, is that worse than the alternative? I don't know. Right. I mean, right now yep. planes aren't falling out of the sky all the time, but they have a couple times in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. We've had we've had that issue with um, with some companies that the, there was a software issue, and uh, it caused certain planes to behave in ways that that weren't expected. And could that have been prevented by, um, at, you know, at what stage should that that have been detected and prevented? I just don't know enough about the specifics of the situation, but we know that there are issues. Yeah, and uh, hate hate to pick on airplanes so much, right? I mean, it feels well, like I mean, this the, is so much famous, broader than that. But. I forget the name of the machine, but the famous case is the the X ray right. machine that that killed a bunch of people. Yeah, that, that's the famous like um, multi threading problem, right? That's often brought up when people are learning about uh, race conditions. Well, they had it was this the issue that as I understood it was like you could. There was some scenario, maybe it was a multi-threading scenario, where you would reduce, you would try to reduce the radiation, and the 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 screen would say that it was, but it actually didn't get reduced mm-hmm. or something like that. It was, yeah, I, that is a very famous case. I mean, you're probably right; it is the famous case that gets brought up a lot. Um, when I looked into it, it was like an amazingly seemed like it would have been a very hard condition to introduce right these machines were actually pretty prevalent and the combination of buttons and things that you would have to hit to recreate this was seemed almost impossible but yet it happened and it didn't harm and i think kill people um and it's so, actually i've heard it i've heard it used to argue software licenses but i think the best or the better thing that it's an argument for is hardware safety the hardware yeah. safety is the thing that that really is a, right that's a, good a hard idea. limit on the amount of radiation this thing can put right. out I, I agree i think the industry did learn a lot of lessons from from that it, it's cited as like this horrible example yet they they apparently did learn some stuff and, and make some changes um based on that and i think you know we're going to learn some of that too in in other ways i'm afraid you know looking at all the software that's in a, in a car right now, what mm-hmm. is, you know, at what point is if, when the software fails, is that going to cause us problems? And we, you know, people were driving cars, you know, a hundred years before software was in cars and they were fine general. I mean, not fine, but there were accidents all the time, but, mm-hmm. um, are, I don't know. Are we going to, 
Are we going to, we're going to forget that lesson of hardware safeties. I, I don't have a, I hadn't really thought this idea through, but it, it, there's a vague concern that I have when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah. I was kind of doing that mental exercise too. Like, what if we just, um, on certain roads, there is a signal that says I'm a 30 mile per hour road and the car has to obey. It can't go over 30 miles per hour. Well, okay, great. We've solved people speeding, but there are sometimes when you want, when you need to speed, right? When you're, when you're running away from the zombie hordes, I want to be doing a hundred miles per hour on, on roads that that's are right. abandoned. So, you know, I mean, that's a farcical example, but. No, I mean, but if there, I mean, if there's like a, a collision that happens behind you, you have a reason to want to get away from that. Right. You know? Exactly. Sometimes we do need to go a hundred miles per hour and that should be the discretion of the, of the driver for their own safety. There's not all kinds of scenarios that we can predict. So I'm for hard limits with exceptions, I guess. Yeah. I mean, but, this but is a subject of a totally different conversation that would neither, that we're also not equipped to talk about. But that right. Is, but that's kind of the theme. Us. That's the theme of the show. Right. Yeah. We're just talking like, about not, stuff. Not equipped to talk about this stuff. Um, so let's just speculate. So, so that's our, is that our tagline? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll add it on to this uh, episode. <laughs> stuff we're not equipped to talk about. It's a series. Yeah. It's the whole thing, really. Yeah. So, okay, real quick. Hey, we're at the end of the show here, but if you had to if you had to come down on one side or the other to the question of should there be a license for software engineers, have you do you have a decision on that question? I think that there are there should be a license for certain specific classes of software. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's my current feeling is subject to change. That's my <laughs> that's my strong my strong sure. opinion loosely held. Yeah, I I would have said earlier I would have said no, but I think you've convinced me during this episode. I think you've convinced me that for certain roles we should have that. It should be specific to the industry. Like you said, the FAA maybe has a specific license for engineers. What's on that test? What's on what, what are the requirements for that license? I don't know. But I think that would be an interesting place to start. Now, should you uh, have to have a license to like do web development or to build a, a fart app for an iPhone? No, I don't <laughs> think so. You know, well, I think most I, okay, of the that stuff is a, that people do. Right. Yeah. The vast majority. And that's the stuff that scares me that I don't think we want to be licensing that stuff. But there's a there's an argument to make like, well, what is that web app connected to? What can it what can it do? Right. What if that web application um, ha has some broader power that's connected to something? And maybe you'd say, well, whatever is connected to that industry, let's say it's um, driverless cars. There's some way you can control speeds or something on, a, on an interstate through some web application. Um, well, that would be regulated through the, the transportation industry, right? So maybe that's the way to solve. But yeah, just broadly speaking, I don't want to have a license to be able to program something. I want to be able to, you know, what? can you imagine a scenario where you open up your computer, you open up your terminal, and you need to put in your license GUID? Like, <laughs> before you can use this terminal, please give me what your license is and sign in to some, some government portal or something like that. I don't, I don't know. And that's obviously extreme. Yeah. Right? Stating that that's going to be like that, but 
I guess that's that's where my mind goes. Like, what is the end result of this? Where are we headed if we if we go down this path? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, like you're a, right. You can keep going. You can keep kind of peeling and going back. Like, you know, the financial industry. There's, you know, that would be a place to license. And how many, how many companies are doing that? How many companies are in in our hometown here in Nashville or in the healthcare industry mm-hmm. doing things? And like, when does it become? health and safety and when is it just like a customer portal or a patient portal maybe you don't have to have a license to just say you know here's the results of your tests but right you do have to have a license to actually write the software for the runs the machines that do the tests you know I don't, right there you go we solved it we solved it yep i feel good i mean yeah. mark this off the list all right well, that that was good. I'm glad we got to kind of formalize our um, uninformed thoughts and then put them out for the public to judge us. That's um, right. That's what we do. So, all right, Andy. I will uh, talk to you next time. All right. See you then.